This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Before we jump into the episode, a word from our sponsor. No, no, no. It's actually not a word from our sponsor. It's a word from me about the sponsor of this episode, the Foundation for Economic Education. The Foundation for Economic Education changed the trajectory of my life, and that is no exaggeration. I, even though as my wasted years in institution of so-called higher learning, I majored in political science, uh, that only required that I take one economics course, and it was terrible. I hated it. I didn't learn anything. I got a fine grade. I was bored. I wasn't interested. Yet, about a year out of school, I was doing some research online, and I came across an essay called What is Seen and What is Not Seen by Frederick Bastiat, and it blew my mind. It was absolutely one of the greatest light bulb moments of my life on the basics of economic thinking. And it absolutely changed everything for me. It began a relentless hunger for economic understanding that has persisted to this day and led me to devour everything from Milton Friedman to Ludwig von Mises to uh, Karl Menger to very obscure French physiocratic economists like Turgot. Uh, I mean... You name it, all the way up to, to more modern-day things. I, I read Marshall, I read Keynes, I read Marx. This all started with that one essay. Because for the first time, I understood that economics wasn't about money, it wasn't about the stock market, it wasn't about math or charts and graphs. Economics is a way of thinking. It's a series of very basic assumptions about the world that when you put those on, like a lens through which to see, it helps you see, as Bastiat said, what is previously unseen, not just the immediate and intended effects of various actions or policies, but the long-term and unintended outcomes. That power, that paradigm, is the single most important thing for me in developing my worldview, my understanding of how to navigate the world, not just in terms of positions or beliefs on issues of policy in my own personal life. Thinking like an economist on the individual level has transformed my life and been integral and in and, and a core, a foundational element of everything that I do. So if you want to have that kind of experience, that kind of understanding, the very organization that put that essay online that I first discovered, the Foundation for Economic Education, FEE.org, they put on some of the most amazing summer seminars. I have been an attendee at these seminars in the past. I have been a faculty member for many years speaking at these seminars for high school and college students. If you are in that age range of 14 to 25 in that range and you have an interest in understanding what economics is all about, I cannot encourage you to attend a fee seminar enough. And if you're listening and you know a young person who has that interest, or they just want to spend three or four days visiting a cool place in the summer, um, fee also has, not just in the summer, they have spring events as well. So go to FEE.org, tell your friends to go, apply to go into to, to get into one of their seminars, and when you do, 
there's a little box that says, how did you hear? Just put my name, Isaac Morehouse, or the Isaac Morehouse podcast, because they are sponsoring this podcast episode, and I want to let them see that my listeners are uh, following up and going and applying so that I can prove to them that, uh, hey, this is a good investment for you, Fee, to be sponsoring the Isaac Morehouse podcast. So show them that by putting in my name when you apply. Check it out, fee.org. I cannot recommend it highly enough as a way to get introduced to the life-changing paradigm that is economic thinking. And now to this week's episode, generously sponsored by the Foundation for Economic Education. You ready? Yeah. All right, here we go. We'll just jump right in. I have no, usually I have like some, some like notes prepared of questions and, or I've got nothing. I've got a beer here. This is going to be amazing. That's great. Let's just wrap. Yeah. All right. Welcome to the podcast today. I'm incredibly excited because we're talking about an incredibly important cultural moment. And that is the arrival of the new Star Wars movie, what it means, what to look for, the history, the background. I don't know any of this stuff. I just grew up watching Star Wars and, you know, chewing on Lego guys and stuff. Uh, and I loved them as a kid. I obviously hated the prequels because they were terrible. Uh, but we'll talk about that. But Christopher James Nelson is joining me today. I feel like if you add a middle name, it makes it sound very like you're, it carries more weight. It's like James Earl Jones or something. You know what I mean? That's right. Who's also in Star Wars. Isn't that interesting? See, look at what happened. Free association. Chris has been on the podcast a couple times before talking about everything from Adam Smith and language uh, to movements and morality and ethics to uh, superhero movies. But I don't know if there's anything that you're more passionate about, Chris, than, than Star Wars. In fact, at your wedding, I remember explicitly having the thought, I was just sitting there. I was so happy for you. You were clearly so delighted sitting at the head table after you'd said your vows with your wife. And I thought, Chris has finally done it. He's finally found something he loves more than his limited edition Princess Leia action figure. <laughs> so <laughs> Star Wars is a big deal to you. So let's first talk about this new movie. Now, I see the previews. I think they look amazing. I'm super excited because I like J.J. Abrams' work on Lost. Uh, I thought that was a great show. I liked his, at least the first new Star Trek movie. So I watched them. I think this looks awesome. I get chills. How do they hit you? You don't like them as well. I don't. And obviously a lot of this has to do with the, uh, the background concerning the old canon, the old canon of, of expanded universe, the books, the, the comic books, everything that we've gotten over the last 35 years, which Disney has now said no longer matters. So my, I'm very conflicted about Star Wars. I mean, of course, I'm unbelievably excited about this new movie, but um, I have to now live in two worlds. I now have to accept a new cinematic universe, episode seven, but I also have to hold on to the old canon. And I have to actually fight for its preservation too. When it comes to the film though, I mean, we've talked a lot about this over the last year or so. I guess my my only concern at this point is that they haven't really told us much about the movie at all. Um, everyone seems to have a really strong sense of whether they're going to like it or love it, but I don't really even know what's going to happen. I mean, the previews are pretty much just sort of like, it's just kind of fan service, a lot of nostalgia, a lot of the same sound sites. You see some of the old actors. That's about all we know really at this point. What do you it, think? Well, it's, it feels like the previews. So when I first watch them, I just have this emotional level reaction that gets like chills and I get excited. But then if I actually sit back and analyze it objectively 
and say, okay, what did this preview communicate? It is, as you alluded to, it, it seems to be primarily just a series of touchstones, a series of ways of saying, hey, fans, you know, re you remember the Millennium Falcon? You remember this sound? You remember Tatooine? Do you remember the more sort of serious uh, adult feel or even or even the non-CGI, non-shiny looking spaceships, the old dirty banged up metal from the first trilogy that you loved? Look, this movie's going to have that. And it's kind of a way to like send you little reassurances that this looks and feels much like the, the Star Wars that you came to love and not so much like the prequels that many people were unhappy with. And that's kind of all it does is communicate like, hey, like, here you go. Here's a little throwing a bone to the to the fans. There's not much in there in the way of what the plot is going to be or even who the main characters are. Um, now, that sense of mystery can be fun with a trailer, um, but it can also be a little bit like, okay, well, I, I just want to know that there's a there there, you know? Now, do you know, do you have like insider, you know, gossip on what the actual plot is going to be? Not, not as much as, as, as you might think, you know, again, because I'm, I'm, I'm engaged in a rebel, rebel, uh, fight of my own to preserve the old canon. So I, in some ways I've, I've tried to keep some distance. I also want that mystery. I mean, I've just sort of decided to some extent, it's like, we've got about a month now to go. I'm just pumped to see the film and actually have something to base my views on. Right. I feel like there's such hype around this, such speculation. All we can do is just sort of like make rumors about this. There are entire cottage industry of, of geek websites devoted to this now, but we have very limited information to go on. But what we can infer is essentially that it, it seems like it's going to be a repeat of the original episode four. A lot of the same beats. There's a Death Star. There's a Darth Vader type character. There's some evidence that there might be something like an Emperor style character, but that's just slowly starting to leak out. Um, we're going to have our Luke character. I, uh, and I think I think what we're probably going to see is that Luke Skywalker himself is probably going to play some sort of Obi-Wan role. And I'm actually guessing that he's going to die at the end of the movie in the same way that Obi-Wan died. Hmm. Now, I want to get some background and some history because you've referred a couple times to uh, the canon, the expanded universe. For people who, like me until relatively recently, when you've sort of enlightened me on these things, who may not know this sort of the full, the full background and what those things mean. So... You had the original three films that Lucas, uh, he wrote them as well as directed them. Is that right? He, he wrote and directed the first and he did not direct the second and third and he co-wrote the second and third. Okay. Okay. So, so those were, those were not based on any previous books or, uh, comics or works of fiction or anything, right? No. Although okay. what they had done it, what they had done a year before the very first movie as a way of promoting it among sci-fi community, they actually published a version of the book, a version of the screenplay to kind of get it out there. So it's kind of neat. So you can find a version out there from actually from 1976, even though the movie came out in 77. But wow. no, for all intents and purposes, it was a brand new idea. Okay. So after those came out and they, they were over the span of, what was it? 77 and then 79 and 80. Is that 80 right? and 83. 80 and 83. Oh, that's right. There was a bigger gap. That's right. 83, the year of my birth. Wonderful year. Um, so after those came out, was there an immediate, like the creation of a lot of uh, fan fiction and what, what you refer to as the expanded universe, which basically means any stories, comic books, TV shows, anything that is based around the Star Wars characters and setting from the original trilogy. Is that correct? Yeah. That's right. It was, there was, so, so go ahead. No, no. So I, go ahead, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say, so those were starting to be created and, and were, was there like a process of some of them being dubbed officially 
part of the story and some of them being seen as sort of like apocryphal? Yeah, great question. So it was a slow burn for a while. What actually happened right after A New Hope came out was that they commissioned Alan Dean Foster, a really popular sci-fi writer, to write what could be turned into a movie sequel. You know, at this point, they weren't entirely clear, is there going to be a sequel? Is there going to be a third movie? Is this going to be a trilogy? They they had him write up a story, kind of float an idea that they could eventually turn it into a movie. And that's called The Splinter of the Mind's Eye. So I think around 1978, there was actually a book that comes out that just continues the adventures of Luke Skywalker. Um, after that, there's, you know, from time to time, there'd be a kid's book or a kid or a Marvel started a comic book, these various things. But by about the late 80s, you didn't have much more. And it really kind of started to die off. It was 1991. That's really sort of the the, the watershed moment in the expanding universe history. It's when Timothy Zahn came out with what's now called the Thrawn trilogy. What for all intents and purposes at the time were sort of considered like episode seven, eight, and nine. Mm-hmm. And that's what really kicked off a new explosive era that really hasn't ended in in non-cinematic saga-related content, whether it's role-playing games or uh, video games or comic books or novels. I mean, there were hundreds of novels at this point from what was what is known as the expanded universe, which is now known as the Legends universe, now that Disney's decided to decanonize. <laughs> and and by the way, the process—I mean, we can go into it more in depth. But but essentially, you know, Lucasfilm owned the rights to these characters. They were the protector of the intellectual property. So what they effectively did is they kind of had a they had a they had a pass on everything. They got a chance, they had a veto on everything essentially, right? So if Bantam Books or later Del Rey Books wanted to take a particular character from the saga in a certain direction, Lucas was actually presented in every instance with a list of the sorts of ways in which this might alter the universe, his universe, his vision, and he had a chance to change things. And a number of cases, too, he would introduce new characters himself to the writers, to the role-playing game editors, to the video game developers, and they would incorporate some of those new ideas into it as well. So there was an incredibly integrated uh, saga from the start. There was a process, there was an enforcement mechanism, to the extent that truly everything up until 2014 was in continuity with one another. There was a 35 year saga that all added up. So, so did, did Lucas and, or the corporate entity that owned the the IP, did they use that veto frequently or were they pretty liberal in terms of, because technically like, okay, so let me get, make sure I know how this works. I could write a coloring book based on star Wars characters and, and add a bunch of characters and based on the star Wars universe. And that's perfectly fine. If I sell it, I could be sued uh, for violating IP laws, unless I get sort of the imprimatur from, you know, the owners of that IP. So there's probably is stuff out there that's been done technically illegally if it's, but it's just like too small for, for anyone's time. But most of the time would, would the creators come to them first or would they get sued? And like how much was Lucas and Lucas films kind of shutting down and censoring, or were they really liberal with, with who they let use what? No, it's a great question. And there is a lot of fan fiction out there, and there always has been. And as a matter of fact, there's a lot of very perverse uh, slash fiction. Um, you know, lots of fan fiction stories about, you know, Han and Jabba the Hutt getting it on. I mean, all sorts of bizarre <laughs> stuff out there. That is not canon. That is not part of the Lucasfilm canon. No, what essentially happened is Lucasfilm, you know, they're, they're licensing this intellectual property. So they go to West End Games as a role-playing game maker, and they say, go ahead and continue to develop the saga in this way. You know, we're, we're kind of, we're entrusting you to do this, but then they still have this sort of veto power. They, or they get, they grant the license to Phantom Books and then later Del Rey to sort of continue the adventure. So in a number of cases, Lucasfilm is driving the creative process. In other cases, they're extending the license, but sort of retaining the ability to say yes or no to certain projects. And, 
And yeah, they actually, from time to time, um, they would they would radically alter um, books and comics. Um, they would. Um, there are several books actually that to this day have yet to be published, fully completed books, even with cover art. That at the end of the day, Lucas and Lucasfilm decided, you know, because of our interest in taking maybe something about this character in a different direction later, we're going to put this on hold. So there is stuff still in the vaults. Mm-hmm. By the way, a lot of stuff from the expanded universe that the authors and comic book artists and what have you came up with, Lucas himself integrated into the movies, into the prequels, right down to the name of the home planet Coruscant that comes right out of Timothy Sahn's books. So uh, that's what I was going to ask you. So so after all these years of a really vibrant kind of expanded universe in games, books, etc., um, some, you know, some officially driven, some written by fans and sanctioned, etc., then you have these prequels. Now, were these always in the works? Was this something Lucas always wanted to do, was to create... Uh, the because the, you know it starts episode four. Was that an intentional way of setting up episodes one, two, and three? Yeah, it's it's interesting. The funny thing about it, the answer to that question is it seems like it's evolved over time. It seems like the more and more distance between Lucas first writing the original draft for Star Wars and now it just seems like the story it's kind of convergent. There's there's some myths around this. I mean, when the movie first came out, it wasn't called Episode Four. It was just called Star Wars. It didn't even have a subtitle. It was only once Empire and Jedi came out that this idea was, hey, you know, this is sort of like a serial, kind of like the old style Flash Gordon, what have you, like any sort of chapter book series. So, hey, why not start it in the middle? And then I think he sort of backward from that said, hey, you know what? In my view, the story is about Anakin. So let's let's tell a story, you know, 10 years from now about about him as a kid. But from the start, I don't necessarily know. I don't know that we'll ever know whether there was always a plan to do episodes one, two, and three. But if you go back and read all the interviews from the early 80s, apparently there were there were certain times when Lucas thought there was actually going to be 12 movies altogether. So it's just varied. From, it's just it's just varied. Huh. Uh, so it's very clear he was he was not done with this story, and he was very much uh, liked the fact that this expanded universe kept expanding, um, both in ways that directly involved him and didn't. And then when the prequels were created, so you're one of the only people I met, and you are not like a sunshiny, like oh every like you find the silver lining in every movie uh, no, type of guy. I'm but, a total curmudgeon. No, yeah. yeah, you're you're a you're a curmudgeon, you know, curmudgeonly character. But you're one of the only people I know who like you will acknowledge the crappy things about the prequels, but you defend them. Now tell me as a fan, what do you make of the prequels? What did they get wrong? What did they get right? Um, and you know, what, what is there to offer in their defense? Oh man, that's a really tough question because I have to be honest when it comes to these things. And I think it's one of the reasons why I am so defensive of the prequels. It's just, I can't be objective about Star Wars. I mean, that's how important it is to me. It's, by the way, it's one of the reasons why I have a hard time with Disney getting rid of the canon that I know and love, right? It's so integrated into my life and so many people in my generation. But the prequels, I think, um, they get the basic beats right. I mean, it, it's, it's funny. I have to frankly sort of divorce the story from the movie. And uh, to me, Star Wars is more than just a cinematic universe. It's a saga. So, um, were the prequels based, so they were based on stories that were kind of part of the expanded universe or were they, were they a new direction for that? There are, there are a number of things from the prequels that, um, characters and basic beats and names and various sorts of things that we had in the stories and, you know, in the expanded universe, other things were created brand new. And the interesting thing about the expanded universe was the way in which it was able to take some of the things in the prequels that maybe, 
maybe slightly contradicted some of the some of the novels and the comics, but then they found ways of then working it back in. So it was this constantly dynamically sort of integrated saga. But the thing with the prequels is I think I think they get the fundamental thing right. If you if you if you take away Phantom Menace, let's pretend that didn't exist. Please. What you're left with, right? Let's just forget that happened. <laughs> what you're left with is essentially essentially a story about two teenagers, father and sons, both of whom discover this big brand new world, this mysterious religion, the force. And they're both confronted with the same decision. Do I or do I not turn to evil? One decides to become evil. The other not only decides to become good, but in doing so rescues his evil father from evil and brings him back to the light. You have an unbelievably, to me, beautiful mirror tale about father and son and, and the son becoming the father, but also redeeming the father. That's great. I think if you, if you keep the prequels in, here's what unfortunately happens. It become the saga becomes about Anakin rather than, you know, it becomes about the the um, the fall and rise of Anakin rather than the story about Luke Skywalker, father and son, redeeming, you know, hmm. good from evil. Hmm. So the so so even the the existence of that prequel, it sort of elevates Anakin to the central figure. I mean, in some ways, even in the original trilogy. You could see Vader as the central figure. He's the one that eventually saves Luke's life and kills the Emperor. And and I guess you could see it that way. And his his turn from evil to good is sort of like the thing that that proves that you know light is stronger than darkness. Would you would you disagree with that? I think that's right. And to some extent, that confirms some of this stuff about the prophecy we hear about in Phantom Menace, that Anakin is the one to bring balance to the Force. He ultimately does that by killing the Emperor. Huh. But it's it's sort of a it's chicken and the egg. Does he do that or is it Luke that redeems Vader okay. in order to... So it's just... It, yeah. It's funny. Depending depending on your view on the prequels, Star Wars is either about Luke Skywalker or it's about Anakin. Why do you think the prequels from a cinematic standpoint... So sort of the grand story arc... Um, I could I could buy that it that it it's a pretty cool story as you sort of laid it out to me, but when I watch them I can't my, I can't deny what my eyes are seeing. I mean it is some painful dialogue. It just it there's so many things that just don't fit together. People behave in bizarre irrational ways. Like none of the motivations for characters seem to line up with their behaviors. What to what do you attribute that? Oh man, Lucas. You know, I mean, he, I, I am his greatest critic and his greatest defender. I mean, I don't think they're very good movies. And I think that, I think that there are certain beats, certain plots that are worked in, they're contrived. I don't think, I don't think like with Empire and Jedi, I mean, unfortunately he didn't bring other people in to sort of make this congeal. And I sort of feel like that's, so there are certain problems with the movie, right? There are certain things that I just wish weren't there, but I think like more broadly, I mean, I think in a way this gets at this this question of, of whether prequels were or are ever necessary. I mean, one of the one of the fun conceits about episode four being episode four is that you don't need to know why Darth Vader became Darth Vader. You don't yeah. need to know you don't need to know how the rebels stole the plans to the Death Star. Um, you leave that mysterious. Like, let's jump into you know. So yeah, there, no, there's something beautiful about, and, and I think that's that's probably part of the reason that it was so easy for a series like this to spawn all this fan fiction and expanded universe. There's something beautiful about starting in the middle with things taken as a given that are very interesting, and and their origins are left unexplained. There, there's something really attractive about that, and there's something almost too convenient. And the prequels seem to do this a number of times of like. 
tying every little thing together so perfectly, like in wrapping up every loose end and every character somehow like knew the father of every other character. Like it was just too nice and neat. There was no room for your mind to be like, I wonder where that came from. I, you know what I mean? Oh, totally. I mean, clearly the fact that Anakin is the creator of C-3PO is unnecessary and contrived. It doesn't do really anything except, except, you know, set those two up as this, as this, um, you know, this steady force throughout all six movies. That's all it really seems to do. It was unnecessary, but here's the thing. And here's why the expanded universe is so important. Here's why when you take a saga centric view, it all makes more sense. You learn a lot more about all those things that feel contrived simply in the course of six movies, but imagine spread over the course of 200 books and thousands of comics and radio dramas and role-playing games, they have the chance to explore these things. There are there are problems, there are tensions, there are contrivances on the surface, there are contradictions on the surface from movie to movie, but the expanding universe smooths those problems out. And the real danger I think that Disney faces now with the new canon is that having deemed all the expanding universe, uh, you know, uh, having, you know, cast it off to the, you know, the dark side, those contradictions are now really apparent again. The prequels are canon as far as Disney's concerned. Hmm. And that's a huge challenge I think they face. I actually think that the day may come when they invalidate them altogether, if not redo them. Because but of the, course, if, if that happens, then they might eventually redo the original Star Wars as well, and that could be very problematic. But nothing's stopping Mickey from doing that, unfortunately. <laughs> so, so the problem you're saying is because the prequels, if they don't have all of that expanded universe to help explain and, and smooth out some of those contradictions, if you just leave those as canon, they, they present too many problems that don't jive with the, the original movies. Yeah. Okay. That's absolutely right. In fact, it's a funny thing right now because the novelizations of the prequels are considered canon by Disney. But here's the challenge there. There are certain things in the novelizations that didn't actually appear in the movie, and those present further contradictions to the later films. Disney has a really messy bundle on their hand. And by the way, this is so ironic because the, the propaganda about getting rid of the old canon was we get to start from scratch. Far from it, far from it. By the way, some of the most important contradictions, think about it, like why does Obi-Wan look so much older? You know, only only about 20 years have passed, right? They explain that in the prequels. Why doesn't R2-D2 sort of tell anybody that, like, like you know, if, why doesn't he tell Obi-Wan? He's like, oh my God, it's you, isn't this nuts? Don't you remember me from the prequels? <laughs> into that, right? Why doesn't Han believe in the Force? They get into that. I don't want to spoil anything, but they get into that in the expanding universe. So, all right, uh, before we get to what Disney did and what all happened there, and I want to examine that from sort of an artistic standpoint as well as a business standpoint. Tell me, this expanded universe, I have like basically no familiarity with it. Um, how many of these books have you read? Oh man, um, over a hundred, over a hundred, I'd say. There are about a hundred, I'm guessing now, I think there are about 150 upwards of like what you might consider like adult novels. There are many, many more what they called like junior novels, you know, little things that are like 60 pages long that like Scholastic Inc. published for, you know, school libraries, that sort of thing. So I've, I've read, I've read about 75%, I'd say of the books. And, and um, what is the average, like, not only quality just as a as a, a book, but also how well did they do? Because I just assumed these were really, really niche, but you were telling me that some of them uh, were bestsellers. Well, most of them were bestsellers. I mean, most of them, even some of the worst ones were appearing maybe, I, I think one of the worst, worst selling books from the old expanding universe, I think it appeared somewhere like 160 or so on the, um, on the bestsellers list. 
So, you know, it still appeared like in the USA Today top 200, right? Hmm. But the best ones were always on the top of the New York Times bestseller list, always. And by the way, that's not now been true in the last year or so with the Disney books. They hmm. are, uh, they're not doing very well, neither are, uh, are the television spinoff shows, the cartoons that they have on Disney XD. So yeah, they did, they did extremely well. The comic books did very well. I mean, they would wax and wane again, but it's hard to remember now, but in the late 80s, really Star Wars wasn't that popular anymore. And a lot of the expanded universe really wasn't taking off, but the Thrawn trilogy in 91 changed everything. Hmm. So, so this almost feels to me analogous to if there was someone who only ever knew of Batman based on, uh, you know, the original show or, or the Tim Burton movie or something, something like that. Uh, and then the new movies, you know, they might, they might have some thoughts on the new movies versus the old ones, whatever, but all of us kind of know, even if we haven't read them ourselves, that Batman himself is this character that has this rich history in comic books and graphic novels, and it's gone through, and there's different versions, and there's different takes on it, and you know, there's a there's a universe around that, and and many people probably just didn't know, as I didn't, that Star Wars is the same. It has this rich universe all around it that is akin to any of the characters you would find in a Marvel or a DC comic. So. What that kind of puts perspective into what Disney has done. So, so walk us through when Disney purchased the intellectual property from Lucasfilms. Um, what was that process, and what has happened since? Yeah, great question. This went down in 2012, and uh, I remember when it happened. I was incredibly excited because I remember thinking, essentially, what Disney did is they bought Lucasfilm and all of its licenses, right? So they 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 uh, now controlled the license they'd given to Dark Horse what, Comics. What was the price? And, Do you remember? Yeah, it was four point oh five billion. <laughs> it's amazing. Not bad, right? And yeah. I heard a, I heard a um, I heard an estimate today. I think um, I think altogether as a as like a saga as a franchise i think disney is it's made like 50 billion dollars or something right most of that was in the toys and whatnot it's just really amazing but um yeah 2012 they bought it and this was immediately when then disney announced that well great now that we own it we're gonna we're gonna bring it back to the cinema and we're gonna we're gonna do episode seven eight nine in addition to other one-off movies um and um in a way that's when i got a little less excited um it was last year around april um i remember the day um, they made an announcement that they were decanonizing the old expanded universe. Now, here was the thing. I, I, had, I was under no illusion that the movies were going to be direct adaptations of the books. But what I had sincerely hoped, what I actually naively presumed, was that they were going to, like with everything else, like with all the hundreds of thousands of other stories that they'd created over the years, they were going to find a way to integrate it at least, to make it sort of like you know a parallel story or what have you. They decided not to do that. That was a very dark day from which I have not recovered. <laughs> so, so I mean, in the case of uh, Star Trek, correct me if I'm wrong. So when they rebooted and decided to do another uh, cinematic version of Star Trek and J.J. Abrams uh, directed that, what they did, I, it seemed very clever to me. Uh, the first movie, the second one seems a little odd, but the first one was basically let's show uh, the origins of the crew of the Starship Enterprise and then they found this clever way to essentially stay true to the Star Trek universe, but give themselves the freedom to take this crew in a different direction through this kind of time warp parallel universe thing. It seems like that would have been a really nice way to not cut out any of this expanded Star Wars universe, but to find a way to, f to give yourself enough freedom 
to go in some interesting directions or, or maybe just create a whole new set of characters that take it in a new branch that the expanded universe hasn't touched yet so that you don't have to, to tangle with all that. But what do you think motivated the decision to, to essentially say, and you can clarify what exactly they did say that we are now considering all of this expanded universe, everything besides the six films. And I think the clone wars, uh, animated series, everything besides that is now considered, uh, we're calling it legends and it's just whatever. So we can write storylines that contradict those. We can write things that pretend that those never happened. We we're basically cutting out all of this expanded universe. What motivated that decision? And from a business standpoint, do you think it's going to end up coming back to bite them? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know. I mean, I think there, there are several reasons that I think there were several reasons they did it. I think that I think that they believed a lot of the propaganda over the years about about critics of the EU, critics even of the prequels. I think a lot of critiques of the EU are wrapped up into people's views about the the movie prequels, which is interesting. But and by EU um, we mean expanded universe, not European Union. That's right. Look at me, I'm <laughs> jumping into the exclusive lingo. I, uh, that's right. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I think that. Um, I think that they, I think that they actually believe that the expanded universe was too messy, and that it would be creatively more productive to actually start from scratch. Um, okay, you know, the reason I don't believe that, reason I think it's propaganda, is that this story group that they've created that is now theoretically driving most of the stories, they, a lot of them actually, actually miss the old expanded universe. A lot of them are actually part of this movement to bring it back, or at least to sort of like have it be a parallel universe. I think a lot of it just came down to the fact that. Um, it was uh, it was certainly less messy from a IP management perspective. I mean, okay. IP plays a very unfortunate role in our economy, in our culture, and even in Star Wars. There, um, this is just one example. The um, a lot of the early Star Wars books actually gave royalties to the authors, which they're still paying out. I think a lot of those early Star Wars books are 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 you know saga defining moments in the expanding universe. There are characters, there are story beats that um, that you would need to revisit if you were making a a you know an old canon seven, eight, and nine episodes, right? And I don't think Disney wanted to pay it out. Now here's the weird thing, right? It's like Disney Disney is going to make probably something like five billion dollars on this movie alone. So it's like the margins wouldn't have really been hurt, right? But I still think there was a sense in which they felt like, no, it's ours. We're starting from scratch. And it's unfortunate. So here's the thing. I think that they're not going to get they're not going to learn the right lesson, right? There are thousands of not hundreds of thousands of us out there who were no longer buying the books the way we used to we're no longer watching the tv shows the way we used to the new comic books are selling pretty well but um but there are a lot of us who've said we're not going to see the movie we're not gonna we're not going to do this come we on who's not going to see the movie you know you'd be surprised there are a lot of there are a lot of us out there now look I'm no, are you telling me you're not going to see the movie no i'm, I'm definitely going to see it i've got tickets you know you but have to because i need you to tell me after i see it and love it i need you to tell me what's wrong with it <laughs> I'll definitely, I'll definitely be there to do that. In fact, I can tell you everything wrong with it now. But no, in a way, here's the, here's the thing. Here's the one thing I have to thank Disney for. I have been obsessed. I've been a slave to Star Wars my entire life. Right? I love this stuff so much. I collect the stuff. I've got the books. I read the stories. I'm into this. I'm into the fight to save the EU. And yet, the best thing they did was decanonize it for the following reason: Episode Seven is now just a movie to me. It is not anything bigger than itself. It's just another action flick by J.J. Abrams. You're, and I have like, nothing to think that. You were like Princess Leia chained to this blob and, you know, now you're free from it. I don't know. that. I'm trying to – that was terrible. I don't <laughs> want to picture any of that. Um, okay, so 
it's really interesting you said about intellectual property. So essentially from a business standpoint, you think Disney is saying, yeah, yeah, we can get some freedom for our writers creatively, but they probably could have found a way to do that without decanonizing the expanded universe. But it's more of a, hey, let's consolidate our intellectual holdings here, so to speak, and make sure now that um, the only things you can really profit off of are within this new, I guess, I guess how does that work? So, so does that mean... That just means that they don't have to pay as much to the authors of these things or where, where's the, I guess I'm not seeing the, the way that this works out from a business end with the IP. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a small part of the story admittedly, but you know, um, to the extent that say, uh, a, a character like, like Thrawn himself from one of these really Timothy Zahn movies, right? Like if, if he were in the films. And that increased the interest in the old uh, Thrawn trilogy okay. and everything else by Zahn. Well, then all of a sudden, Bantam, Del Rey, whatever. Yeah, exactly, right? So it's, but again, you know, these are probably small margins. And, you know, a company that can afford $4 billion for a franchise could probably afford to pay out an author or two. But I think that there was just a sense in which, and it's not totally nefarious, but there was a sense in which they felt like, look, um, from a business perspective, like, we, let's, let's, let's uh, you know, vertically integrate this a little better. You know, for a long time, Dark Horse Comics, was publishing Star Wars right up until 2014. Well, Disney owns Marvel, so they said, you know what, let's just put it under our own house. So it was a kind of a chance to clean that up. I think that they they added some propaganda to say, actually, no, 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 this is just about creativity. We just want to sort of like start from scratch. No, in reality, it was about getting their business house in order. So would you say for you, because, because one of the things I've heard, and this was my initial thought, was, hey, look, after what those prequels did to me, uh, how bad they were just as movies, uh, it's almost, there's almost no way this new movie cannot be an improvement. Um, but it sounds like from, from your vantage point, you have this much broader view where to you, the saga itself and the universe, the story that those, all these various narrative arcs and characters, that's more important than any one specific incantation. So there could be one novel that sucks as a book or one movie that's really weak as a piece of cinema, but that's less important to you than having this cohesive universe that has this really rich story and it's sort of the the the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts um, concept. Is that kind of a, a fair characterization? Yeah, it is, it is. And, it, it, and it's been funny to sort of notice the way our popular culture seems to sort of um, prioritize, say, cinema over other media, right? Like, I mean, I, so again, I take the saga view. I mean, I, it drives me nuts when I hear people say, finally, for the first time in 10 years, we're getting more Star Wars because that's when the last movie came out in 2005. And it's like, no, we've had tons of other stuff, right? <laughs> or people are gonna, people are gonna, um, you know, they're gonna judge the prequels from a cinematic perspective, or they're gonna judge episode seven from a cinematic perspective. They're gonna say one was a good movie. This was a great, you know, that was a bad movie. Uh, to me, it's, it's all part of Star Wars. To me, it tells me more about the characters in the universe I love. So, um, that's the thing, that's the thing they took away from me, right? This is not just another movie. And by the way, if it's a good movie, I'll admit it, but it's just a movie, right? It's not the Star Wars I know. This is the thing we've mentioned Star Trek a few times and there are other franchises like this that, you know, have gone on for many, many years. I mean, Doctor Who is even older than any of these. That goes on for like 50 odd years now. Here's the difference with Star Wars. Those other franchises, lots of other franchises, sci-fi, fantasy, all sorts of franchises, even comic books, they all have their their universe and their quasi-canon and their quasi-continuity. Star Wars is really one of the only franchises that truly has 
a canon that is concerned with continuity to the extent that there, if there are really any contradictions between any of the movies or the comic books or the role-playing games, what have you, they're extremely minor and they're really few and far between. There was such a concerted attempt to, to make this a saga, to build a saga, to build a universe in a way that say, sure, you know, the J.J. Abrams movie, the first movie, it kind of connects with some of the earlier films, but the earlier films don't connect with some of the old TV show and they certainly don't connect with all the books and the comics. Um, that's the thing that made Star Wars different. And that's the thing, that's the thing that this movie took away. And I have to say, you know, it's funny, everyone seems to say, well, the prequels were terrible, anything would be better, right? What unbelievably low expectations we've set for JJ. And the movie's guaranteed to succeed simply by virtue of the fact that, you know, the hype machine has made this all about the fact that the sets are tactile. They go, wow, they actually built the real Millennium Falcon. Wow, they've actually got real actors. Who cares? It's a movie. They're supposed to. Where's the story, right? Um, that's the thing. That's the thing. The lesson was not um, put real actors in a real desert. The lesson was, was a prequel even necessary? I actually am willing to admit that in terms of cinematic purposes, prequels are probably unnecessary. And I think logically we have to conclude sequels might be unnecessary too. That's the lesson. That's the lesson. And I just, I, I worry about this because we are taking away a bit of the cinematic mystery at least, right? We didn't need to know how the Rebels got the stolen plans for the Death Star. We were able to drop in, the, in you know, episode four without that knowledge and just jump into a really great film. The way that now the mystery is being taken away again. A lot of critics of the EU have said, oh, it's too much. It was too busy. They go, you know, there are hundreds of books. We know almost like everything that happened, you know, day to day for, you know, 30 years after uh, Return of the Jedi. It's like, well, guess what? Disney is about to produce a movie a year for the foreseeable future. There's going to come a point when the new Disney canon is going to get really crowded too. And is it everyone, that aggressive? That's what they want absolutely. to do? Absolutely. Wow. I mean, next year is going to be Rogue One, which by the way, I keep referencing the stolen plans. They're going to make a movie about how the plans were stolen. This seems to me to completely miss the point. Everyone says they expand the universe, the prequels, they missed the point. They, you know, they didn't have the real feel of Star Wars. We're about to see somebody unbelievably obliterate all the mystery left. You know what I mean? So there's going to come a point very soon, probably within a decade, where I predict that this new canon is going to be rebooted too. And when that happens, the people who love this canon, I just hope, you know, you know, when they come crying to me, I don't know. I, I just wish they would hear for me as well, you know, so. It's funny that you mentioned, you know, this idea that um, the premacy that cinema has and that so many people are like, oh, thank goodness, Star Wars is is back. And you're sort of saying, you know, it never left. There's all these hundreds of books. Many of them were, were bestsellers. It's really interesting. Uh, a friend of mine actually <laughs> pointed out to me when, when Disney bought it, they said, we're going to reboot this this lifeless franchise. And he was laughing. He was like, He's like, I've been, you know, out there with my kids trick or treating the last 10 years. There's always somebody dressed like Star Wars character. When was the last time you saw Mickey Mouse? He was like, who's the dead friend? You know, he was, he was just sort of <laughs> mocking Disney for having this arrogant stance like, oh, Star Wars is dead. We'll bring it to life. But I think there is something interesting that there, there's been this rich ongoing series of games, toys, books, et cetera. Um, so it's not really true to say we're bringing it, we're bringing it back or, or reviving it. However, there is a way in which it is true. And maybe this is just because of the, the premises cinema gets. But, but if you think of like, um, you know, the average person who doesn't follow, let's say comic books before the Spider-Man movie came out 10, 15 years ago, whatever, they weren't like, oh my gosh, Spider-Man is back. Cause everyone kind of knew Spider-Man's always been around. He just has been in comic books. And I think a lot of people don't know that Star Wars has been around in all of these other formats. Now, maybe, maybe, um, you know, 
people know more than I'm giving them credit for. But I think sort of the average movie going person only really knows about the movies. Do you think that is a failure of marketing that, that there could have been more to be done to sort of showcase the fact that this is a living, breathing story? That's interesting. I, I remember a few years before Lucas sold Star Wars, I mean, he, he had said that his, his real goal, I mean, what he wanted to do the rest of his life was ensure that Star Wars really never left the public imagination. He wanted successive generations of children to read these stories, to see these movies, to understand, you know, eternal battles of good and evil, these sorts of things. These were fables for the ages. Um, so he had done what he could to keep this stuff out. And maybe it didn't work as well. You know, and a matter of fact, it's funny, like the Clone Wars show, which I always thought, well, I was a little indifferent to. I didn't think it was always that great, which is why I'm thrilled that Disney now considers it their canon. They took it away from us, which is totally fine with me. Um, but, you know, it, it wasn't starting to do well. The last season, you know, just ended up on Netflix. You know, it was effectively canceled. So, and it, it was funny too, because I was even starting to get a little tired of Star Wars myself. In a way, I actually think the marketing push was was too extreme. I actually think mm. that it pushed certain people away, including myself. I started to feel... Um, Ironically, as if I was getting too much Star Wars, it was really funny. Like I, I, I felt like, in a way, I felt like I was just being marketed to now. Actually, yeah. in a way that now Disney is just nakedly marketing. Um, mm -hmm. you know, with its hype machine. So, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, as a, as a, as very, very popular right now for businesses of various kinds or or individuals who are, let's say, authors. This idea of content marketing, you give away interesting stuff for free. So you have a blog where you're writing things that people just like to consume. And you build that audience and that kind of enables you, you build an email list, whatever, every once in a while you can say, Hey, how about you check out this product or this company of mine or whatever. And if it becomes all you ever do is say, check out this that I'm selling, check out that that I'm selling, right? You kind of undermine, you undermine the value. That's very interesting. Um, on a, on a very massive scale, it sounds like something, something somewhat similar. Um, okay. So I got a couple things I want to ask you about. And one of them just slipped my mind. Um, but okay, so I'll just jump to the one that I was holding off on. Now I'm sure you've seen this. It's gone all over Facebook and everything. This this post on Reddit or something, this theory that Jar Jar Binks was originally intended to be the ultimate bad guy in the Star Wars um, saga. Have you read this? I've read a little bit about it. Yeah. <laughs> Is this just hilarious, goofy, or are you like, oh, oh, there's something there? Well, here's so here's what's interesting about this. I mean, there's two things to say. I mean, I can address the specific uh, specific theory, but 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 first, I mean, here's the funny thing: like all the speculation I've seen recently about Star Wars, and we're seeing a lot of it because again, there's a cottage industry of websites devoted to you know clickbait Star Wars stuff. It's very hot right now. There are thousands of Facebook groups devoted devoted to it, et cetera, et cetera. But um, everyone's speculating about what might or might not be the case about old Star Wars characters. And again, there's no mystery. Go read the expanded universe. That's not fan fiction. That was the canon up until 2014. So there's a very direct answer to whether or not Jar Jar was ever intended to be a dark Sith. Answer is no, because it's not in the canon. It's not in the old expanded universe, right? Mm -hmm. But okay, so you know that's kind of a snarky answer. But no, I mean, it's, it's very intriguing. I've always found it funny the way that Lucas seemed to actually give the fans what he want and made Jar Jar the one that actually voted for the clone army, you know, effectively the one giving over like dictatorial powers to Palpatine. And actually what you learn a little bit, you learn in the, in the expanded universe about how, how naive Jar Jar really is. So while I don't think he's a dark Lord of the Sith, I do think that, um, he, um, he wasn't a tool of enough. evil. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he he spends he spends time with Palpatine even after the Empire is created, which is which is in a way an interesting sort of um, that's an interesting sort of thing that they pursue in the novels. The fact that okay, great, the Empire's been declared, but remember in the movies you find out that you know as far as most of the people are concerned, the Jedi tried to overthrow the Republic. They think the Emperor is good. Jar Jar falls right in line with that. So at this point, are there basically now two distinct branches? So so when you say, okay, good, Disney canonized the, the or they kept as canon the Clone Wars, that wasn't very good anyway. So now they've got what they consider canon, the six movies, the Clone Wars, and whatever they produce now, and they're going to continue to produce that. And you're sort of like, okay, those are just movies. That's That's dead to me as part of the Star Wars universe. But you still are a fan of the expanded universe, which has been decanonized. Now, will that continue to be developed and built? And so now you'll have sort of fans of this thing called the Star Wars expanded universe and then fans of this thing called whatever Disney's doing and they may or may not overlap? This is the crucial question. And unfortunately, the answer is no. The expanded universe is no longer being developed. And actually, that's what that's what makes me so mad about all this. And that's why I can't just sit back and learn to love the new movie. It would be fantastic if there were Disney canon and there were continually developed expanded universe canon. What prevents but that from happening? Disney. Okay. They're done. So they They've will. So they will. It. So they will like and, sue people if they build on that. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, there's definitely some. There, there's there's a movement right now um, to um, not even just write fan fiction, but to get some of the old expanded universe authors together and create sort of like an alternate story group ourselves. And what we'll do is we'll write stories and we'll we'll go to Lucasfilm, you know, which is now run by Disney and essentially say, would you mind providing your, you know, Disney legends on imprimatur to these stories? And if not, that's fine. Then we'll just distribute them amongst ourselves for free. But there is an attempt to come together to build a new story group. But um, in the meantime, what we're that's plan B. Plan A is still to say, Disney, please, all we all we're asking is that do whatever you want. Call this whatever you want. Call it legends. Call it defunct canon. Do whatever you want. Just allow us to um, keep the story going. So, so what about the possibility that this actually may be a good thing for the expanded universe? That now it kind of has this, you know, it's banned. It's it's forbidden literature. It's legends. It's no one can verify the truth of it. And maybe that kind of adds something to the to the overall universe that you have all these tales and stories that are not verified in the history books, so to speak, but they may, but they may be true. Do you think there's any potential of that? There's a, there's a small immediate potential for people to get excited about the things that don't have the legends banner on the cover. Just a brief background about that. One thing that Disney is doing, they're not actually getting rid of the old books. You can still buy them in any bookstore and they'll continue to republish new editions of the old books, but they've stamped this stupid Legends banner across the front. So in a way, it's actually made the old versions that don't have that banner kind of a neat artifact, right? It's a neat sort of artifact of like the old the old Republic, so to speak, you know, before the dark times, before Mickey. And so um, that's kind of neat, but that's going to die off eventually. And it's getting to the point soon where if you go to Barnes & Noble, probably in about a year, you're not going to see any of the old stuff. It's all going to have the stupid legend stuff on it. But, um, no, I think the thing, here's the funny thing. And there's kind of a, there's kind of a funny psychological cognitive element to all of this. I think the people like myself who appreciate the EU for what it was, which is a, you know, a rich 35 year, um, canon with continuity, with intense concern for continuity, isn't that's the thing we like the most. We don't want it to be separate. Like in a way we're such slaves to Star Wars. Like I, 
I want I want the Lucasfilm imprimatur on these books, I, and I don't want the Legends thing. I want to know that it's the canon. I don't, you know. So that's <laughs> that's the tricky thing. That's the tricky thing. But like I said, I'm mostly in that position because they've they've stopped it all together. I so I want it to not just exist off there. I don't, you know. I don't want it to just be this contraband, exciting thing under the cover that you have to hide from the from the Mickey police. I want it to be a living, breathing thing that can I, be parallel to the Mickey canon. I'm imagining like this giant Death Star, but with Mickey ears, you know, floating over the, you know, over some some hapless planet about to be destroyed. Yeah. It, um, it's a shame, by the way, because because of the way in which the fans of the new canon have actually turned on the old fans of the old canon, and it's 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 Disney's fault. I mean, in a way, Disney really, Mickey really really is the emperor. I mean, he really has turned us against one another. I mean, these two camps should love one another because we're all hardcore Star Wars fans. But because of the way in which they went about it, because of the way in which they stamped the Legends banner, because of the way in which they've cut off the development of that old thing, they've basically made new fans look at us and say, oh yeah, you must have been bad. A lot of myths. They go, oh yeah, those those stories must have been awful. Um, Oh yeah, and the prequel sucked anyway, right? So yeah, none of that stuff was good. We should have gotten rid of it. No, we didn't have to get rid of it. And that's my point. If they would have just gotten rid of the prequels and decanonized those, you know, that would have been, that would have been okay by me. Um, okay. So, so I have this theory because I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, George Lucas, the man, I have this theory. He's going to try to pull like a Steve jobs. He sells it. Disney takes over. And after 10 years of Disney, continuing to descend into mediocrity with this great saga they'll be like george come back save us and he'll come back for a triumphant you know reintroduction of three new movies or something and he will save it and it will be like this you know steve jobs comeback am i delusional or is this a real possibility i love the idea in fact at this point i i'm begging him to come back to you know destroy jj abrams in a lightsaber duel and we and you know take the take the uh the franchise back but i really don't think it's happening in fact actually i think it was just yesterday he gave some interview in which he said he never really wants to be involved with star wars ever again why because he doesn't like the critics it's a shame i mean he feels like (laughs) he probably felt his fair share of hatred after the after the prequels i imagine (laughs) i imagine yeah yeah like i said i was pretty indifferent too and actually there's there's so many ironies when it comes to this eu versus new canon debate i mean the 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 greatest is just like i was saying i mean i was i was almost in a way starting to get a little tired of star wars it was being shoved down my throat before it got sold to disney i felt it was becoming too sort of kiddish and cartoonish and and more than anything i sort of felt like while lucas was the visionary i sort of felt like he didn't know how to actually make a movie and now all i'm begging for is for him to come back and make movies i just want his vision back and that's the funny thing too i think a lot of a lot of critics of the eu share that 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 view they go well lucas was a visionary might not be a good director or writer of uh, dialogue but he's a good visionary but again the irony there on their side is that they've taken that vision which is star wars but they've gotten rid of everything lucas everything everything he loved about the eu they've taken that all away and they've now Ironically, um, they've created this, in their view, this blank slate to start anew. But what have they done? They've just recast all the old actors, and they're going to essentially remake the same movie with the same the same villains and the same Death Star. Yeah, it seems like there's such an opportunity to to take this great story and the vision that Lucas clearly provided, and then say, okay, you're not good at the sort of art of filmmaking, so let's. Let's get a talented filmmaking crew in here to make the films really good as as individual pieces of of art of cinema, um, but without divorcing it from that vision. But it it just unfortunately they 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 divorced 
it sounds like from some of the best part that, that, you know, Lucas brought to the table or that this expanded universe had, um, and are relying purely on this being a good film as a work of film, um, and not sort sort of tapping into the richness of the, of the, you know, the story there as it, as it exists in the EU. All right. So we can't end on a pessimistic note here. <laughs> we give me this movie, this, this episode will air probably a couple weeks before the movie comes out. What is the best case scenario or what would you say to someone who's like, look, Chris, I just want to have a fun time enjoying this movie. Uh, that's one question. And then another one is what is the best possible outcome in your mind of this new movie? Oh God, nothing. It's all bad. <laughs> um, let's see. I think that there will undoubtedly be tons of great nostalgic Star Wars feels. I mean, when we hear Chewie growl and we see the Millennium Falcon and we find oh, I out. I used to be able to do that. I can't do that. <laughs> um, so that's going to be great. That's going to be great. And for the people, you know, by the way, this, this is the thing I want to make absolutely clear. I want my old canon to still exist, but I am perfectly happy with the new canon existing in, you know, a parallel universe. So for the people that are really happy with the new Disney canon, they're going to see what's probably going to be a really entertaining movie. And they're going to, they're, those people who ignore the old canon, they're going to finally find out what happened to all of our old friends from Jedi. You know, where's Luke? Did Han and Leia get married? What happened to their kids? So from that perspective, from a cinematic universe perspective, we're going to finally get some answers. Chris, this has been enlightening and enjoyable. Now I'm going to, I'm going to have to try to still enjoy this movie without thinking in the back of my head. Oh, well, if they just would have incorporated this expanded universe, uh, I'm going to do my best to enjoy it anyway. And then we can, we can debrief afterwards. Sounds good. And when it comes to Disney, may the farce be with you (laughs) and long live the EU rebellion. Oh man, that was awesome. This is a blast. (laughs) Thank you.